through the years of my practice, I've come to more and more deeply appreciate the power of patience. And I heard several of you bringing patience up in this past week. So I thought to speak about patience, to put uh, a special light on it. It's a really humble yet powerful quality that we bring to our practice moment to moment and day to day. It's absolutely necessary in the beginning, in the middle, and even in the end of our practice, they say, although my path is not yet finished, but they say even during times of the arahant, of the, even of the Buddha, pain in the body, you know, maybe there wasn't so much reaction to it, but still there had to be patience. It's an altruistic quality, highly respected in all spiritual circles. But in the West, it's sometimes regarded as a weakness. So I want to start out by introducing uh, this power of patience with the words of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. He says, when it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble, that doesn't mean that one should be defeated or overcome. The very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind. And also you want to remain calm. In that atmosphere of calm, you can develop wisdom. If you lose patience, if your mind flounders by emotions, then you've lost the power to see clearly. But if you are patient from a basis of altruism, then you don't have to lose that strength of mind and heart. You even increase your strength. So I wanted to present it as a power, as a strength. One of our teachers, Sayadaw Upandita, he's our Burmese uh, teacher, monk, in the Theravadan tradition. And he's well known as a teacher who encourages energy, that balanced energy. Some people may feel it's a little too much, but he's really looking for that balanced energy in your practice that you bring to your moment-to-moment experience. He's known as the weary monk a lot of times, the monk that represents that quality of the paramis called energy. But sometimes when he sensed that in some way we were pushing or wanting practice to be other than what is actually occurring, and he sensed some imbalance in our practice, he would chant that ancient Pali chant. Pali is the language that the Buddha's teachings were recorded in. One of the languages, the first language it was recorded in. He would chant in Pali, patience is the supreme virtue. Patience is the supreme virtue of all the virtuous qualities. And through the 23 years that I've practiced with him, I've known that he's been very sensitive to energy. He's kind of a a strict and powerful monk, but very sensitive to energy. And whenever he sensed that there was some impatience in our attitude or in our way of being, in our practice, he would really call us on it in a way, by reminding us about the power of patience. 
I remember a couple of times at least when I would walk into the interview room and a big part of the interview, as many of you know who have practiced with him, is just kind of walking in quietly and doing your bows and he would pay uh, sometimes, not all the time, but keen attention to the way you were walking in. And if he could sense that your mind was way ahead of your body, in a way, he would chant those uh, words in Pali, patience is a supreme virtue. And sometimes I remember him saying to me in English with his kind of um, Burmese accent, but in English, the path to freedom is paved with patience. And so I remember that during my times of practice. In fact, when I was here during um, January and a part of February for about a month, it took me just a little time to realize that I really needed to pause and remember about this power of patience. I'd been feeling subtly impatient with my own practice, kind of feeling that, you know, there's, I practice every year, taking a month or six weeks or two months when I can, and that's rare, but when I can for myself. And um, I always feel that time is short, but sometimes that feeling gets me to be impatient also, and I have to watch out for that. So, I'd been subtly aware of this imbalanced energy that was coming up and that kind of rushing ahead, realizing that there were moments of comparing, moments of judging, analyzing and criticizing my practice. And um, with those uh, things coming up, there was ultimately a realization that these are the manifestations of impatience in the mind. And I needed to settle back and just take stock if I had any agenda there for the practice of this month, any kind of agenda, Um, even if it was like uh, being more patient, you know. I really had to be careful about just being with whatever was arising, connecting and bringing my energy there. So settling back letting go of any agenda I might have had and maybe found out that something was becoming conscious that was previously unconscious. And so I would hear his voice um, saying, either in English or in the Pali words, the path to liberation is paved with patience. Very helpful. I, I remember he would say those words sweetly, not with that strict voice, but in a very sweet way he would say that. So over and over again I had to remind myself that the growth of liberating wisdom comes with this kind of patient energy. It doesn't come with rushing ahead or toppling forward into what we think it should be, but it just that simplicity of being present with whatever's happening. So during that month, I remember walking in that, in that first walking hall when you, when you come up that walkway from the dining hall, that walking hall on the left, which was um, a lovely place for me to do walking practice. And I remember doing walking there and 
just having that realization where just this simple wisdom came forth that said, this process is happening in its own natural way. Allow it to happen that way. And it was just a really great reminder from that wisdom of my own heart to know that it has its own pace. It really just has its own pace. And I can enjoy the pace that it's at instead of trying to make it any different than what it is. So that didn't happen just once. That happened several times during that time I was here. We're often um, reminded about not striving in a way that that is imbalanced. I mean, we have to bring energy to our practice, but not in a way that's grasping after any result. So patience is the direct antidote to that striving when we can find that, that energy, that kind of really balanced way that we can handle our moment-to-moment experience. Patience, it said, has no aim. It's just really willing to be with the moment as it is. It allows the mind to see what's unfolding and it allows the refinements of that unfolding to be known and not just to be in a cursory or shallow way with what's going on, but to really connect and sustain the attention there so that whatever um, can be seen can be seen deeply or as deeply as possible for the conditions that are present at the moment. There are fresh understandings that come from that kind of a vantage point, sometimes slowing down and just sort of surrendering really helps me to see things I never saw before, just very refined moments of seeing where, for example, in this very last retreat, I realized that there was a period of time in my life that a lot of loneliness came up, but I never really experienced it in the way that I experienced it last month. I was pretty kind of pushing that memory away, that feeling of loneliness when certain conditions had come together in my life when I was younger. And it was a beautiful moments of re-experiencing it during the retreat last, uh, in last January and February. And I felt such a relief to feel those moments that weren't, the conditions weren't there to feel them in the past. And um, they were memories, but they were memories that brought present moment experience and um, hooking into those experiences of the past, experiences of the past. And so there were fresh understandings that came, and there were, it was seeing it from a vantage point of wisdom instead of a, a vantage point of sort of an understandable immaturity during that time. So we see how experience arises and um, 
how it morphs, how it connects to other things, how it changes and how it passes away. And there's some uh, beauty in that. It's not always scary. There's a lot of uh, beautiful moments that we see that, a lot of relief uh, that can happen during those times. So to help with this practice of patience, I decided uh, to make my practice really, really simple. And I just want to reveal those things that were simple to me to help those of you who have just newly come. And maybe your example would be better than mine, but I just want to present it anyway. Uh, I decided to make three simple times in the day when I would have touchstones with the Sangha here, which was really important for me because being with the Sangha was, with the community here was so important. It really gave me a sense of feeling the strength in the room and uh, integrating that into my own being. So it was sitting in, in the morning times before the chanting at 6.20. We would all gather here at any time between 4.30 and 5. And well, some of us would come later if we had a, didn't have a good sleep the night before. But um, it was really beautiful to come in at that time in the morning and start the day. It might be different for others uh, of us or even me during other retreats. But that was an important time for me. Then to make a time in the afternoon of touching base, maybe not in the hall, but in my room of just sitting on my cushion in the room. And then in the evening of coming in, in the evening. And in between, just checking what, what is needed now. There were walking times when I made appointments with myself. But just being very careful and very patient with the unfolding of my practice and seeing what is needed now, what is the right balance for this time of the day. So I followed just kind of a a loose schedule with some touchstones in the day, taking proper nourishment, taking proper rest, taking fresh air when I could, when um, when it wasn't too cold outside and I could do that. All the while, bringing a continuity of that patient, uh, moment-to-moment, touching in with the experience, whatever it was, whether it was in stillness or relative stillness or in the movement of my day. Just um, maybe there was formal walking, but a lot of times there was just general walking practice and general mindfulness to the postures uh, of the movement during the day. There were times, of course, of sleepiness and tiredness, being really patient with that, seeing what's needed in the moment. Do I need to get fresh air, take in more oxygen? Do I just need to take an extra nap? And allowing that to be. Conditions of aversion or attachment came up. And just seeing that this is the way it is right now. Can't control, it's already here. So just being patient with those times. Doing the best I could and remembering that this practice is unfolding in a lawful way. Really can't control it. I can feed it, give it nourishment, 
see what the balance is, put it forth, whatever energy needs to be put forth. And then when it unfolds, to just accept how it's unfolding and see how the mind and body could respond to that. After this time, uh, after January, February, I came across this quote of Ralph Waldo Emerson, where he says, Adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. So I I just have always found it interesting that this has been something constant in my life to pay attention to because the name my mother gave me when I was born is paciencia. That means patience in Spanish. Maybe she could see that I needed a lot of it. (laughs) with the conditions that I would come across in my life, having four children to raise, a lot of that time on my own, three of the children raising on my own. And, um, well, you know how it is. I mean, you probably have your own stories that are even more ups and downs and dramatic than I could ever say. But the pace of nature... You know, there's signs of it all around. I was here during the the deep of winter, so to say, and there wasn't much foliage on the trees and the ferns were all died back. But now as I walk around, I can see the ferns unfurling in their own time. You know, it's like there are messages all around. This is the message of nature. That's her message is... It just happens in its own time. And um, when conditions are ripe and having patience for it. I went down to the retreat center to, to pick up some papers today. And I was there. I've been there almost every day of this time of being here, just connecting in for some reason or other. And that um, crab apple tree is in its full glory today. And it wasn't yesterday that I saw, you know. It is just blooming in a way that makes your heart sing. And it's just doing its thing, you know. It's just nature taking in all of the conditions and unfurling in the way it unfurls. And it just took its own time. And now it's just in its full glory of pinkness and um, openness. Nature can't be rushed, and the ferns are are coming unfurled in its own time, too. Because patience is not a quality that gets as much attention as compassion or wisdom, this is why I wanted to bring the light of attention to it and um, tell you stories and, and this and that about it. It may not have any rhyme or reason or an ABC in its format here, but just as it goes in and and connects with your own heart, it might um, help you to remember to bring it forth in, in your own practice. So one of the things I realize about patience is that it gives us endurance when it's there. It maintains an inner silent resolve to keep our, our hearts kind of uh, pointed in the direction of our highest aspiration, even though we don't know what that is, really. 
um, we hear about things called the nibbana or you know attaining arahanthood or arahantship or even buddhahood but we really don't know what that is in a way um, but it keeps our this endurance keeps our path kind of headed in that direction no matter what the timing of that may be um, it keeps us in in the right direction this patience so many years ago i remember feeling like my practice had come to a seeming standstill of course it didn't but i always seem to have these judgments and opinions now and then of my practice as probably you do too and uh, i went to manindra and i was telling him that nothing's happening you know it it doesn't feel like any new insights are unfolding or that I can see any change in my practice. It's the same old boring thing. And I remember when he, he just sat back in his chair where we were on Maui that time. And he just even, sometimes he even had this slouching, disinterested um, demeanor about. But he was just very matter-of-fact. And he said to me, very matter-of-factly, but it was just right straight into my heart. He said, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. And then he didn't add these words, but I got it that it's no sooner than that. When the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. And all that had to be done with the practice is just take one moment of mindfulness at a time whenever it could be done, which more and more we see that it can be done. It was interesting to learn that during the time of the Buddha, he laid down certain rules for the uh, several monastics that were around him. There weren't hundreds of that at that time, as I understand the story to go. But uh, he laid down these rules like we do here in retreat, for the protection of practice so that we could protect our practice and feel safe as as we're practicing, as he did for the monks during that time and the nuns when they came on board, to support our inner quietude, to support our sense of safety and ease so that wisdom could arise from that deep quietude from that quietude that brought clarity in the heart so that the transformation and purification of the heart and the mind could be realized, could be most possible. So these rules were called the code of conduct or the Vinaya. But in the beginning, when the monks were only a few, it was said that there was only one rule. There weren't all the rules that there are now, the one rule was patience. That was the only rule. So the Buddha must have thought, you know, this, this is the most powerful of all the qualities that we could bring to our practice. And of course, as more joined in in the, in the monkhood and acted inconsiderately or unmindfully, more rules of conduct were created, and to this day, There are 227 rules of conduct covering all facets of monastic life. 
But still, patience is a supreme code of conduct, the supreme virtue. Years ago, I found this story in the sports section of a Honolulu newspaper, and I I always read this story um, in connection with patience. It's about a young boy who traveled to Japan to a school of a famous martial artist, and he wanted to be a student. So this young boy, when he arrived at the dojo, he was given an audience by the sensei, the teacher. And he, the teacher said, what do you wish from me? And the student said, I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka or student or um, in, in the land. And, the, and um, so he said, how long must I study? The master asked him, how long do you think you should study? And the boy wondered about that and he said, I want to study for as long as I need to study. How long should that be? Ten years at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as all your other students? The, the boy replied to him. And he said, 20 years then. 20 years? What if I practice day and night with all my effort? And the master answered, then it would be 30 years. How is it that each time I say I will work harder, you tell me that it will take longer? The boy asked. The answer is clear, said the teacher. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. In other words, we learn from that story that A full and complete presence gives us more clarity, gives us a broader view to find the way, to know the way, and to respond skillfully with what we meet along the way. So in the early years of my practice during the 70s, I would hear the teachings and just feel, at the same time I would feel a sense of really being at home, um, and finding my, my place in, in this lifetime in, in a spiritual practice. Even though I didn't fully understand what was being said a lot, what was being taught, I, I had a lot of questions, and I wanted answers to my questions you know, right away. But the mind wasn't really, didn't have enough dots to connect, so to say. And there wasn't enough um, inner understanding, and not all of the teachings were connecting. And so I really had to be patient with that. There was a great hunger for the Dharma. So it was a combination of spiritual urgency and a good bit of greed for the Dharma or impatience. I wanted the understanding to come faster then it was coming. Suzuki Roshi says that it is when your practice is rather greedy that you become discouraged with it. So I really could see that's true. That's really true when I learned that. 
that uh, the discouragement would come because of the thought that it had to come faster than it was or because I wanted more than I could really take in at that time, than I could really understand at that time. And I remember going to Manindra telling him about feeling this discouragement. And he was in the same way, you know, just very, he was very salt of the earth kind of teacher, very down home, connecting on just a regular level. Uh, He was more like my uncle or my grandfather than he was like a teacher um, in, in that kind of formal way. But I remember him just leaning back a little bit and in his lilting uh, Indian accent, he would say, on account of impatience, you are feeling this frustration. On account of your impatience, you are feeling this frustration. I just really pointed right at it. And I, I took his words in easily. I never was felt like it offended me. I, I was so always grateful for that direct um, hit of seeing how, how it is. I learned that patience is, is the willingness to wait. Just when there was more wisdom, natural wisdom in the heart and mind, and when new information came, I could really take that information in and, and connect it with some experience that maybe I, I couldn't decipher Uh, previously, but now I could understand that experience. Someone asked His Holiness the Dalai Lama in an interview, have you made any progress in your patience, in your practice? And this was a really important interview. I've read and heard um, quite a few interviews because I I adore the Dalai Lama and I take in what he says with, with great respect. So he said, He was very thoughtful, and he said, "Um, in a year, no progress. Five years, for five years, I see little progress. Ten years, some progress. In 20 years, yes, I have seen progress. So, I mean, I thought, well... Who am I to expect (laughs) all of this? You know, my little pipsqueak being in the world, you know, just kind of slogging along in the Dharma. And here's some great being and who really says it like it is. So it was beautiful. I love this um, prose of, of Rilke who says, Be patient towards all that is unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers that cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now and perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And so I I really believe that is so. I'm going to get this ant. May you be happy somewhere else, please. (laughs)
or else I'll be nervous when you get on my lap. Okay. <laughs> so why did the Buddha say that it's the highest virtue? We discover that when we really um, investigate or explore this terrain of patience and impatience, we discover that this quality activates and actualizes other virtuous qualities. For example, it is a great support to equanimity, this patience, this quality of patience. Equanimity is this this spacious balance that has this non-reactivity, this quality of non-reactivity in this spacious balance. Where unpleasant feelings can arise, but there is no reaction of aversion to the unpleasant feeling. Where pleasant feelings can be arising without the reactivity of attachment to the pleasant feelings. So in this area of equanimity, supported by patience, activated by patience a lot, there's this quality of um, purity in the mind, in the heart. And this equanimity leads to more and more purification. It purifies um, aversion. It has a way of purifying aversion and attachment weakening it. So this equanimity is ability to rest the mind before it falls into those extremes of attachment and aversion, the extremes that really cause us a lot of pain, the pain of in the moment and the pain of causing other moments through the habit pattern of them coming and going and coming and going through the habit pattern, causing other moments to arise in the future. So in India, the colloquial way of translating equanimity is seeing with patience. Seeing with patience, as in, if you're a grandmother or a grandfather or an elder, and there are children around, and you you see their, you know, their naughtiness, their shenanigans, their places where they get, they invite danger or they're in danger. You see it with patience and with wisdom, not with a reactivity of that's bad, but you see it with that equanimity, that patience of equanimity that can bring forth some wisdom, not reactivity, that can help them instead of make them feel distanced from you. So this patience supports equanimity. It also supports another um, great quality that is important in our practice, and that's the gentle flowing strength of endurance. Endurance. It's not that kind of grit your teeth endurance, let's get through this moment or this experience or this whatever uh, difficulty there may be. But it's what Suzuki Roshi calls constancy, the gentle flowing strength of the heart and the mind to just keep going as it keeps open to the insights or the wisdom that may come from 
the constantly constancy of staying open and to just keep letting the practice flow that long enduring mind and heart that can be very right here right now but at the same time it has this sense of uh, seeing the process as a process of kind of just knowing that the path ahead will come in its own time, bit by bit, without grasping for any result. So it sees the spiritual process as a journey rather than a goal, this sense of constancy. When I think of who might represent this to me in my life the most these days, it's Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma or Myanmar. And she is a living example to me of this gentle flowing strength of endurance, of constancy. She just seems to know what to do and the time to do it. For I, I really don't know her directly, but just indirectly in all the stories I've heard about her, um, people that know her most directly. She's like a gentle flowing river, which has this quality of non-opposition. You know, the opposition to whatever her, what she represents in her life and the trajectory that she honors and holds most dear. She doesn't present that in a pushy way. And if there's opposition to it, of all the news that I hear uh, coming from Burma, I'm connected a lot to Burma um, every year, personally going there, um, I just notice that she doesn't push back or push away or strike out at. She just stays open and presents this stance of, non-opposition and openness. She's been such a great model for, for those in power. She stays connected, and she's quite influential in her beingness without being forceful. It's, it seems like she moves around boulders and debris, like that gentle flowing river. And in doing that, she gathers strength and admiration. She gathers allies, even in the so-called opposition of those in power. And she gathers allies and more strength in herself as she flows through her life. So as many of you know, she's been practicing metta, and a Vipassana for many years in her home where she's been incarcerated for 20 years or so, off and on. And some years ago, she was taken from her home incarceration to be incarcerated at the public prison. It's called Insane Prison, I-N-S-E-I-N. It's kind of the appropriate name. (laughs) And she was put on trial for some ridiculous reason, but I'm not going to go into the... Uh, whys and wherefores of that, the facts of that right now. During that time, there was news of her, an article describing the trial where she walked into the room where the government court officials and some military leaders were in the room 
waiting for her. And, and they were all sitting down, and, and she was walking in, and just all her grace and, and her beauty and her inner sense that just exuded all over the place of non-harming, of metta and friendliness. And when she walked in the room, the government officials and the military stood up in just awesome respect of her. And there was just this dead silence in the room as this one reporter uh, reported it. And um, I just could picture and sense and understand deeply how it's greatly possible how people around her are so affected just by her gentle flowing strength, her constancy, her way of being in the world without opposing, just with making her her deep values known over and over and over and over again. So there is this equanimity and there is this gentle flowing strength, endurance, constancy that patience activates in our life just from this very simple and humble quality that we can have, that we can practice in little moments every day as we're here. Moments when when there's noises and sounds and and creaks, and I've learned to love the creaks of the hall. (laughs) They wake me up when I'm sleeping. And um, just when there's, you know, a lot of kerfluffle, and just um, when the line in the um, meal uh, line isn't moving as fast as I want to move it, or there's no more asparagus left when I get there. Um, things like that where you, it, it's not only where you feel you have patience, but you feel a sense of generosity that, oh, other people got it, you know, the asparagus, they can enjoy it. Things like that. So other qualities like renunciation can come easily can let go of that, that's okay. Can let go of the uh, impatience when you know you want to get to the food faster than the line is going, for example. And um, letting go of the unwholesome or unnecessarily ways of acting out, really looking at, you know, noticing what our intention might be of how we might do something in, in response to what's going on here and just saying, no, I, I can wait. I can be patient for that to come about in its own way. I don't need to push that river. And on a very deep level, what are we letting go of during those times? We're letting go of attachment, aversion, and even on a deeper level of ignorance because we're not ignoring what's going on in ourselves or around us. Generosity comes more easily. Acceptance, understanding without trying comes more easily. I feel when this is happening that I really have a sense of deeply caring for myself when patience is there. And deeply caring for others too, of course.
So we all know only too well how impatience has tremendous power over us, mostly out of habit. We, don't intention, we aren't intentionally impatient, but it's because it's not checked as often, or that groove of, of patience isn't as deep as that group of, groove of impatience. We fall into that cow path of the mind, as one of my yogi friends told me more easily than we fall into patience. So in my life I've seen the habit pattern of impatience sometimes just on the home front. It it makes a to-do list much more important than the connecting with friends and, and family, loved ones and family members. And whenever I could see that happening in my relationship with close friends and families, as much as I could, it became important to me to um, not have a to-do list, but to make that title of the list, to do or not to do. And (laughs) just have an option, you know, to not do. And a lot of times it's more than half of the list. And You know, a lot of times it's because you can't do it all anyway, and then it's not ever need. It's not needed anymore. But just to let go of of what you think needs to be done. And I remember the kind of the preparation list of the the words of Mahasi Sayadaw preparing to um, to practice deeply is making life simple making life more simple. So I especially look at this to do or not to do when I'm not really connecting with, <clears throat> with Steve, my husband, Steve Armstrong, who's, who's here at the other center now, or my children or my friends. But there was an experience with my mother that really awakened my sensitivity to this. And I've only told this story once other times once a time, other time in in public, because I'm a little bit um, embarrassed, ashamed uh, of myself in this story. But I want to tell you this because it's important to know that um, we all have these, you know, deep cow paths, and the mind goes there, and it's just so important to pay attention to. So the story is that in raising uh, four children. They're now grown-ups, and um, they're my friends. Sometimes I call them my brother and sister by mistake, you know. And um, I had this endless errand list, as, as I have, you know, when they were things needed to be done and picking them up and dropping them off and all the, you know, I was a taxi driver um, of the time, at the time. And my mother had this thing of visiting us every year for a month or six weeks, and um, a few times, two months, she would be with us from her home in California. And this one time I took her grocery shopping. Um, she enjoyed making her favorite dishes for us. She's from the Philippines, and she wanted to buy the ingredients to, to make for us. She makes this wonderful dish called adobo, and... Um, so she was shopping to do this, and I was in a hurry. 
and there were people to pick up, children to pick up, etc. And she was in her later years during that time. The body was strong, the mind was alert, but she's very slow. And with honesty, I can say I was rushing and I was really being impatient. And I know I'm basically a patient person, but that time I wasn't patient. There were conditions. I can't blame them on conditions. One of them was the habit pattern in my own life, in my own heart. So we got in the car. I rushed her, and uh, we got in the car. And um, so she was sitting beside me, and she, she was sniffling quietly, and she took out her her Kleenex, and she was wiping the tears from her eyes. And um, so I said, what's, Mom, what's wrong? And she says, in her broken English, she says, I'm shedding a tear. It really um, breaks my heart even to think about it now. I'm shedding a tear. And... um, I have more equanimity now than I did when I told the story the last time. She didn't complain. Um, She wasn't a complaining person in that way. But I know what happened. And I said, I'm sorry, Mom. And uh, so she she just went on her way. She did her thing that, you know, she shed her tears. She wiped her tears. And to this day, I wish I could change, you know, that time. I wish it could be that. What's the name of that movie the, where you can do it all over again? Yeah. Huh? Groundhog Day. You know, I wish it was that kind of a thing. I could play it again, you know, but can't. Anyway, I, I took that in in a very deep way. And um, I'm, I, I really try to be careful about those things now. So it was a, it was a very painful lesson. To me. So the opportunities we have to practice patience are usually those small moments, just like that. It isn't some big thing that we have to overcome. It's a lot of little things like, you know, just saying, okay, she's still pushing her cart. I can wait, you know, 15 more minutes. And she's having fun looking at all the vegetables. So it's small events here on retreat. I mean, that was that one little example. But here on retreat, there are so many little times when we can practice patience and and feel that sense of mm, beauty in our own hearts and and just kind of the relief to not be impatient and, and to have some wisdom coming up. They really make a huge difference in and of themselves. And as they add up in our lives, they empower us. And they make those deeper grooves, you know, with the wholesome habit patterns that they also engender. So it's hugely important to pay attention to patience. So just yesterday, a friend sent me a true story about patience written by a cab driver in Minneapolis. And um, uh, don't ask me his name or anything. I I, I don't want to give it to you now while you're on retreat and you might look it up. (laughs) Um, 
that it's really a true story. People thought that it might not be, but I researched it. And I wanted to end this talk with this story because it, it, it just points to how much difference we can make with little opportunities for patients. So it it says in this story, a city taxi driver wrote, I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about just driving away. But instead, I put the car in park and walked up the door, door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail, elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box with photos sticking out and some glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then said, Could you drive me through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says, I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take? I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. She drove, we drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she danced when she was a young girl. Sometimes she'd asked me to go slow in front of a particular building or corner and she would sit there staring into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building like a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab, They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in the wheelchair. How much do I owe you? she asked. Nothing, I said. 
You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly, lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I refused to take the run or honked and impatiently drove away? On a quick review, I don't think that I could, that I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments. But great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. So let's be quiet for a moment. So now let us chant the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Mm 